I want you to close your eyes and remember back to the last diet that you tried that worked. Most people define a diet that worked as a diet that resulted in weight loss. For example, maybe you lost 30 pounds when you did the keto diet that time. We tend to remember the positive, you know, meaning the scale going down, but we often don't think about the long-term effects. How long did the weight loss last once you stopped the diet? Or was there a point where the weight loss plateaued and no matter what you did, the scale wouldn't budge? Did you gain all the weight back that you lost plus more? How did you feel while you were following the diet and afterwards? Were you hungry? Were you tired, constipated? Or worse, did it trigger a gallbladder attack or disease? Food for thought. Did the diet actually work if you gained all the weight back plus more? I want to talk about some of the most popular diet plans for PCOS, the pros and cons of each, and what research exists to back the approach, if any. In this episode, we'll cover low-calorie diets, low-carb or keto diets, low-glycemic diets, anti-inflammatory or Mediterranean-style diets, including gluten-free, dairy-free, vegan or plant-based diets, intermittent fasting and caloric timing, as well as clean eating plans. So let's get started. Welcome to Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. If you're a busy woman struggling with hormonal issues like PCOS, fertility struggles, and other hormone imbalances, and you feel like you're the boss of your life in every area but your hormones, then you're in the right place. I'm your host, Melissa Groves Azero, integrative women's health dietitian, coffee lover, cat lady, all black wearing, former New York City advertising exec turned professional period fairy. It's my mission to be the no BS hormone nutrition education resource for smart women struggling with hormone imbalances so you can have regular symptom-free periods and optimize your fertility naturally. I'm here to share real, actionable, science-based tips you can use to get real results without cutting out foods, spending hours in the gym or meal prepping, and without losing sleep, because we're all about balance here at The Hormone Dietitian, and I am so glad you're here. Let's get started. So let's start with low calorie diets or calorie restricting diets and why those don't work for PCOS, or at least why they don't work for long. Low calorie diets can come in many different disguises. Yes, there are plans where you outright track what you're eating and you calculate the calories and or the macros and try to stay within your daily limits but they also masquerade in many different forms. So a particular diet may have you counting points using a red light, yellow light, green light formula, or packing your foods into different color-coded containers so that you're limiting your portions of certain foods. But ultimately, they all go back to controlling the amount of calories that you're actually eating. 
So the pros of these kind of diets is that, yes, it actually is true that you have to be in a calorie deficit in order to lose weight, meaning you have to be burning more calories than you're taking in. So yes, you are going to lose weight temporarily on a calorie-restricted diet. Cons, you know, really the biggest con when it comes to eating fewer calories than you need is going to be hunger. Your body really wants you to maintain your current weight. So it's going to do its best to get you to eat more by increasing hunger hormones like ghrelin and increasing cravings for carbs and sugar. And ignoring your body's own hunger and fullness signals can be really uncomfortable. Because your hypothalamus is receiving the signal that not enough fuel is coming in, it's also going to do whatever it can to get you to slow down. And it's going to do this by turning down your thyroid hormone production, uh, which acts as your body's thermostat. So you may feel tired and low energy because after all, all a calorie is, is a unit of fuel. If we have less fuel, we're going to have less energy. Your body will adjust to your lower calorie intake and slow your metabolism accordingly. This means your weight loss will plateau and now you can eat even less without gaining weight. And additionally, while yes, you do need to be in a calorie deficit to lose weight, calories in, calories out is old science, and it doesn't take into account the complex hormonal imbalances at play in PCOS. It is physically impossible to lose weight if you are insulin resistant, for example. Androgens are anabolic hormones, meaning they promote growth and weight gain. Adrenal hormones like cortisol and DHEA also play a role in weight. Metabolically active excess fat promotes inflammation, which promotes storage of fat. And furthermore, leptin dysregulation has been seen in PCOS as well, and this can also affect appetite and cravings. So what does the research show? There's no long-term research on low-calorie diets in PCOS. However, the Biggest Loser study can shed some light on the long-term metabolic adaptation after weight loss. Contestants of the show were followed six years out after they had lost a significant amount of weight. They measured their resting metabolic rate before and after losing weight, and then six years later. While their metabolism dropped an average of 610 calories a day after losing weight, when they had regained back most of the weight six years later, their metabolism remained lower at an average of 704 calories a day, less than what it had been before they lost the weight. So before the competition, they could eat an average of 2,600 calories a day without gaining weight. But now if they ate over 1,900 calories a day, it was an excess of what they needed and would result in weight gain. My two cents, I don't recommend counting anything, not calories, not grams, not 
points, not macros, not anything. We are all busy and we have better and more important things to spend our time on than counting calories. I also do not encourage eating according to external rules that force you to ignore your body's own hunger and fullness cues. If you've ever found yourself at the end of the day having extra points or grams or whatever, you know what I mean. You may find yourself eating really weird things to meet your macros. On the other hand, maybe you're having an extra hungry day because you did a harder workout than usual yesterday or whatever, and you may find that you run out of calories or macros or whatever early on in the day, and then you find yourself left with eating lettuce, pickles, and Cool Whip for dinner. So please tell me how this is a healthy or sustainable approach to eating. All right, next we're gonna tackle low carb diets. When insulin resistance is such a large factor for up to 95% of people with PCOS, it makes sense to limit carbs, right? I mean, it seems like a no-brainer, but I always say don't put your brain away just yet. There are some pros, low carbohydrate and very low carbohydrate diets like true ketogenic diets can help improve insulin resistance and lower blood glucose levels, which secondarily helps lower androgens because the ovaries produce more testosterone in response to high insulin levels. But how low is low? Contrary to what you might think when you read the headlines that a low-carb diet shows benefits in PCOS, if you actually dig into the methodology of the studies, many of the quote-unquote low-carbohydrate diet studies are done using 40% of daily calories as carbs. So lower carb than the standard American diet for sure, but not by any means low. With an 1,800 to 2,000 calorie a day diet, we're talking about 150 to 200 grams of carbs a day. When it comes to cons, there are a few cons of a low-carb diet. First, any diet that restricts the types and amounts of fruits and vegetables you can eat is going to have a negative impact on the amount of fiber in the diet, which can negatively impact the gut microbiome and can increase constipation. The gut needs variety and eating the same three vegetables every day is not a good long-term strategy to support gut health, which is important because we know the gut microbiome plays a role not only in PCOS, but also in metabolism, glucose regulation, mood, and more. Secondly, there's potential for several nutrient deficiencies to develop when following a very low-carb diet, again, because you're not getting a variety of fruits and vegetables, and you're cutting out some food groups like grains and legumes entirely. Finally, there are some very real risks of following an extremely low-carb, high-fat diet. The keto diet has been known to trigger gallbladder issues. It can also add stress to your kidneys, decrease bone density, and may increase risk for heart disease and colon cancer. So what does the research show when it show, comes to keto and PCOS? Uh, there's one uh, six-week low-carb study that compared a 60% carb, 25% fat, and 15% protein diet 
to a 40% carb, 45% fat, and 15% protein diet. And this study showed no change in glucose levels. Insulin did decrease by 30%, and there were also improvements in cholesterol levels. Another 16-week study compared a standard carb diet with a low-carb diet. The standard carb diet was 55% carbs, 27% fat, and 18% protein. The low-carb diet was 40% carb, 40% fat, and 19% protein. In this study, it showed a 27% decrease in fasting insulin, a 23% decrease in testosterone, and in the standard carb group, there was actually a decrease in HDL cholesterol, which is not good. That's our good cholesterol. We want that to be going up. Um, for keto, there's a little bit. In 2005, so way back, uh, there was a six-month pilot study in 11 women with PCOS. They ate less than 20 grams of carbs a day. Uh, there was a 12% decrease in weight, 22% reduction in free testosterone improvements in LH and FSH ratio, and a 54% decrease in insulin. So pretty amazing, right? Um, we want to think back that there were only 11 women in this study. It wasn't a randomized controlled trial, so it wasn't being compared to anything and only five women completed the study. So less than half of participants completed a six-month six study. Another study uh, looked at this one and concluded that the results are too heterogeneic for a general recommendation of the keto diet in this patient population. So really this was kind of it um, for years until recently. And now there've been a couple of additional smaller studies. So there was a study in 2021, in, again, in 17 women who are categorized as obese, where they followed a therapeutic keto diet for 45 days. Um, it also included high protein. So it was 1.1 to 1.2 grams per kilogram per day. And they did require whey protein supplements to achieve that amount. And it, it turned out to come out to about 35 to 40% of daily calories were protein. Uh, the daily carb limit was set at 30 grams a day. They also drank at least two liters of water per day. And the diet was 1600 calories a day, which would be a deficit for most women. Um, they found that this improved LH, FSH, sex hormone binding globulin, insulin sensitivity, and HOMA IR, which measures insulin resistance, and it also reduced androgens. Interestingly, um, this one, it didn't look like any of the participants dropped out of this study, but on the other hand, it was only about 45 days or about six weeks. Another small study focused on a Mediterranean-style keto diet that was high in plant phytonutrients, but again, this study only had 14 participants, and it was done for only 12 weeks. Um, they did see significant weight loss and improvements in glucose and insulin levels, um, as well as insulin resistance, along with improvements in markers like LH, FSH, and testosterone. Um, but again, this was not a randomized controlled trial, so there was no comparison group. 
So my two cents here is that we should absolutely be mindful of our carb consumption. And the vast majority of people are eating way too many carbs um, and more than our bodies can safely handle in one sitting. But we don't have to go that low as a keto diet. I recommend keeping carbs to about a quarter of your plate for an easy way to gauge our carb portions without having to count or weigh or measure anything. Um, and I really only pay attention to starchy carbs like grains and grain-based foods like bread and pasta, starchy veggies like potatoes and legumes, and of course, any processed carbs and added sugars in the diet. But any diet that makes you limit or restrict any fruits or vegetables is not a healthy diet and is not sustainable. So we talked about the total amount of carb consumption, but does the type of carbs matter too? Yes, but. Um, so low glycemic carbohydrates raise our blood sugar less compared to high glycemic carbohydrates. This is true. But the glycemic index measures foods by themselves and not in the context of a meal. Most of us are not sitting down and eating just a bowl of white rice, for example. We're eating rice with chicken, broccoli, avocado, or whatever else we're pairing it with which is adding protein, fiber, fat, which is slowing the impact that that carb has on your blood glucose levels. So pros to following a low glycemic plan are that yes, low glycemic index foods do impact your blood sugar less than high glycemic foods. Cons, it can be hard to tell by looking at a food whether it's high or low glycemic. Um, to complicate matters even further, how the food is prepared matters. I'm a dietitian and I can never remember whether a baked potato is higher or lower glycemic compared to a boiled potato. And then if you take that cooked potato and you refrigerate it, the glycemic index changes again. So it's really complicated. So what does the research show? Um, there was a 24-week crossover study in 22 women with PCOS, so small study. Uh, for two weeks, they followed their normal diet. And then for two weeks, they followed the same diet, uh, but swapped the carbs for low glycemic index carbs. And they did show improved insulin sensitivity in those two weeks. Uh, there was another 12-week randomized controlled trial in 37 women, um, and it was a low glycemic diet versus the normal glycemic diet. And they did see an improvement in ovulation. 24.6% of cycles were ovulatory versus 7.4% of cycles being ovulatory in the normal glycemic diet. So my two cents on a low glycemic diet is any diet where you can't tell by looking at a food, whether it's okay to eat or no, is a big no for me. Uh, we don't have to worry about glycemic index as long as we're not eating carbs by themselves and instead are always pairing our carbs with protein, fat, and fiber in the context of a balanced meal. Yes, we should prioritize slower carbs like whole grains, legumes, starchy veggies, 
eat the skin of the starchy veggies to get more fiber. But ultimately, there's really not that much of a difference between, for example, brown rice and white rice. What we eat our carbs with matters far more than the specific type of carb that we're eating. Hey there, quick break in the episode to jump in and tell you about a brand new live workshop I'm doing in June. As a dietitian who's worked with thousands of women with PCOS, there are two reasons why most women schedule an appointment to see me. The first is that they're trying to get pregnant, but they aren't having regular cycles. The second is that they're trying to lose weight or their doctor told them to lose weight so that they can get regular cycles, get pregnant, or lower risks for diabetes and other long-term risks of PCOS. But if you've ever actually tried to lose weight with PCOS, and let's face it, you've probably tried at least a dozen different ways, you've probably realized that the same rules don't apply when it comes to PCOS and weight. It's not as simple as calories in, calories out, or eat less and move more. Maybe you signed up for a boot camp with your bestie and your bestie lost 15 pounds while you worked just as hard and gained a pound and a half, you're right. The same rules don't apply, but that doesn't mean that weight loss is impossible with PCOS. We just have to approach it differently. First, did you know that weight is actually a symptom of PCOS? Just like your other symptoms like acne and hirsutism and irregular cycles. So trying to manage a symptom like weight without addressing the root causes of that symptom isn't going to get you very far. So in my new workshop, Losing Weight with PCOS, we're going to be talking about all the reasons why it's so hard to lose weight with PCOS, why focusing on the scale is the wrong approach and what to focus on instead. And the best part is it doesn't involve giving up any of your favorite foods. And it will include a bonus one-week meal plan and recipes to help support you. Losing Weight with PCOS is happening live on June 15th, and it will be recorded if you can't make it, but of course you'll want to show up live to get your questions answered. Register today at thehormonedietitian.com forward slash PCOS weight. That's losing weight with PCOS at thehormonedietitian.com forward slash PCOS weight, all one word, P-C-O-S-W-E-I-G-H-T. Okay, back to the episode. So what about anti-inflammatory diets? Inflammation tends to be higher in people with PCOS than in people without PCOS. So following an anti-inflammatory diet seems to make sense, right? Yes, but again, it's a yes, but. Yes, but not every person with PCOS has inflammation. Inflammation isn't always caused by food. Sometimes it's caused by excess body fat, PCOS itself, gut microbiome imbalances, and lifestyle factors like inadequate sleep, high stress, or a sedentary lifestyle. And not all quote-unquote inflammatory foods cause inflammation in all people. Gluten does not cause inflammation in all people. 
dairy doesn't cause inflammation. And in fact, studies show the opposite, that dairy is anti-inflammatory, especially in people with metabolic syndrome, which a lot of people with PCOS qualify as. Fermented dairy is anti-inflammatory as well. So a quote-unquote anti-inflammatory diet that tells people to avoid gluten, dairy, eggs, soy, sugar, et cetera, based on a theoretical inflammatory effect is just a flat-out lazy recommendation. So what is anti-inflammatory? Increasing colorful fruits and veggies, increasing omega-3 fatty acids found in fatty fish like salmon, and other healthy fats like olive oil, nuts, seeds, and avocados, making most of our carb choices whole foods like whole grains, legumes, and starchy vegetables. This is much more in line with a Mediterranean-style diet than with a made-up list of foods to avoid. Pros, a Mediterranean-style diet focuses on the types of foods that are healthy for everyone. Fruits and veggies, especially dark green leafy veggies, healthy fats, including an emphasis on seafood, olives, and nuts, and mostly whole food carbohydrates like whole grains and legumes. Uh, Cons of this way of eating... Not necessarily a con, but if your cultural background isn't from the Mediterranean area, then some of the foods included in this diet may not reflect the types of foods you grew up eating or the foods you currently enjoy eating. But we can apply the principles of a Mediterranean-style diet to any diet by including these types of foods, but swapping them with foods that are more culturally relevant for us. For example, if you didn't grow up eating Swiss chard and spinach, that is okay. Swap in another dark leafy green like bok choy or turnip greens or collard greens. So what does the research show when it comes to Mediterranean diets and PCOS? There was an observational study in 112 women with PCOS and age and BMI matched controls. It looked at how closely the people in the study followed the Mediterranean diet, and it found that women with PCOS ate more simple carbs and saturated fats than women without PCOS. And they also had a lower intake of complex carbs, fiber, and monounsaturated fatty acids. They also found that the closer a person adhered to a Mediterranean diet, the better their CRP levels, uh, which measures inflammation, uh, HOMA-IR, which measures insulin resistance, and testosterone levels. Uh, There was another study on an anti-inflammatory diet in PCOS. And this was a 12-week study of 100 women with PCOS who were categorized by BMI as overweight or obese, and it used a Mediterranean-inspired, low-glycemic, anti-inflammatory diet that encouraged eating legumes, fish, and low-fat dairy in a Mediterranean context, which uh, added up to 25% protein, 25% fat, and 50% carbohydrate. Uh, Complex carbs were emphasized over simple sugars and fiber consumption was high. The participants ate a meal plan based on a 500 calorie deficit of their needs. 
carbohydrates were spaced evenly throughout the day and participants ate five meals a day spaced three hours apart. They were also encouraged to eat unsaturated fats like olive oil and flaxseed. The study also included 30 minutes of stair walking a day and three times 10 minutes of sit-ups or abdominal crunches a day. Uh, sound complicated? Yeah, a little bit. Um, nearly 20% of participants dropped out of this study. Um, in those who did finish the study, there was an average of 7% weight loss, 6% reduction in waist circumference and improvements in blood glucose, inflammation, and cholesterol levels. Um, additionally, 63% of the participants regained regular menstrual cycles and 12% got pregnant. So my two cents, uh, really the Mediterranean diet is really more of a way of a life than a diet per se. I think we can learn a lot from this type of eating, but swap in our own preferred foods and still achieve an anti-inflammatory effect. While we're on the topic, I wanted to address the common advice that you need to go gluten-free and dairy-free if you have PCOS. There are no studies on PCOS and gluten, uh, zero. I have seen the rationale for recommending a gluten-free diet based on a single Petri dish study. Cells were placed in a Petri dish, normal digestive enzymes were removed, and it found that gluten inhibited leptin binding to its receptor. I actually had to change my standard settings on PubMed to even find this study uh, because I have it set to only search human studies. <laughs> um, I do not believe that a single Petri dish study from 2015 in which the conditions didn't even match the conditions in normal digestion should be extrapolated to make a recommendation to an entire population of people. Uh, maybe that's just me. Uh, when it comes to dairy, there's one study on a low starch, low dairy um, diet in PCOS, and it showed benefits on weight and fasting insulin, but it's unknown whether those effects were due to the starch or the dairy. Other studies have shown that dairy is anti-inflammatory, higher dairy is associated with lower incidence of endometriosis and other hormone imbalances, and that full-fat dairy results in better fertility and pregnancy outcomes. So my only caveats with dairy when it comes to PCOS is to not eat too much dairy. More than three servings a day has been linked to increased acne and to avoid low-fat or fat-free dairy for better hormone balance when it comes to PCOS. So you want to focus on the full-fat dairy. What about plant-based diets? Should you avoid animal foods if you have PCOS? Most people following a 100% plant-based diet are eating a diet that's proportionally very high in carbohydrates and low in protein. While it is possible to achieve a protein intake of 0.8 grams per kilogram a day, which would amount to about 54 grams a day for a 150 pound person, 
This amount of protein is the bare minimum we need to survive. Definitely not the amount we need if we're active, struggling with blood sugar imbalances, weight, or fatigue. I recommend 25 to 30 grams of protein per meal for blood sugar stability, which brings you to a total of around 100 grams of protein a day, including snacks. Legumes contain protein, uh, but they also contain carbs in higher amounts than they do protein. Nuts also contain protein, but they contain fat in equal or higher amounts. So really the only concentrated protein source that is plant-based is soy, which is totally fine, but you shouldn't be eating soy three times a day, every day. I find that a lot of people who are meeting protein needs, or at least coming close to meeting protein needs on a fully plant-based diet are eating a lot of processed artificial meat substitutes that are full of inflammatory fats and agricultural byproducts, or they're relying on very high amounts of protein powders. It is very difficult to achieve a more balanced macro way of eating, which is necessary for, for blood sugar balance. In general, keeping carbs to 30 to 45 grams per meal is a maximum upper limit for most women, unless they're extremely active. It is very easy to go over this amount and make more than half your plate carbs on a fully plant-based diet. It can also be extremely difficult to lose weight on a fully plant-based diet. For example, in order to get 25 grams of protein, you would need to eat three ounces of steak or chicken, which is going to run you around 137 to 140 calories. If you're eating dairy, you could eat three cups of yogurt to get 25 grams of protein, but that's going to run you 448 calories. If you're fully vegan, then you would have to eat 1.7 cups of chickpeas to get 25 grams of protein, which has 463 calories or seven tablespoons of peanut butter, which is 674 calories. So you have to eat much more calories to achieve the protein targets necessary for blood, balanced blood sugar. There are also several studies linking vegan diets to menstrual cycle irregularities and ovulatory irregularities or lack of ovulation. We need cholesterol to make hormones and there's zero cholesterol in a fully plant-based diet. Um, and that doesn't even get into the nutrient deficiencies. So there are pros of plant-based diets. Eating more plants is a good thing. Uh, but not all people who are eating a plant-based diet are eating whole foods or a diet that is high in fruits and vegetables. Uh, some cons, being 100% plant-based can be extremely difficult depending on where you live and what you have access to. And it's not necessarily healthy just because it's plant-based. Remember, even Oreos are vegan. So what does the research show? Uh, there was one study, a six-month uh, randomized controlled trial in 60 overweight women with PCOS comparing a vegan diet to a low-calorie diet. At three months, women in the vegan group lost 1.7% of their body weight compared to 0% in the low-calorie group. Uh, but at six months, there was no change. Um, the, 
the groups were exactly the same. Uh, the study had an extremely high dropout rate. 39% um, of participants dropped out at three months and 67% at six months. So two thirds of the participants didn't even complete the trial. So my two cents are we can get the benefits of eating more plants without eliminating animal foods entirely. If you're plant-based for health reasons, there's no reason why you would need to be fully plant-based for PCOS alone. If you're plant-based for environmental or animal rights reasons, it's possible to eat animal products that are humanely raised and sustainably farmed. I would encourage you to do more research around the options and decide what's best for your health. What about intermittent fasting? So one of the things I get asked the most about is intermittent fasting. While there is some research that intermittent fasting can improve insulin sensitivity, which makes sense in PCOS, um, know that most of that research has been conducted in men and in postmenopausal women. I do not recommend intermittent fasting in reproductive aged women, period, because women's hormones are extremely sensitive to scarcity. There are even some animal studies showing ovarian shrinkage in female rats on time-restricted eating plans. Restricting food adds stress to an already stressed adrenal picture in PCOS. Furthermore, studies consistently show, study after study, every time a new study comes out, that intermittent fasting is not superior when it comes to weight loss to any other diet plan. I think where the benefits lie are ultimately more in long-term longevity benefits, but I would not recommend fasting for anyone who has hormone imbalances, adrenal issues, thyroid issues, anyone who is actively trying to get pregnant, anyone with a history of eating disorder or disordered eating, or anyone who's extremely active, not getting enough sleep or stressed to the max. My other issue with intermittent fasting is that it forces you to ignore your body's own hunger and fullness signals in favor of following an external schedule for eating. Most women are already extremely out of touch with their own bodies after decades of dieting. What we need is to connect and listen to our bodies, not continue to ignore what it's trying to tell us. Um, so pros, uh, simply changing the time of day we eat may impact our insulin levels and as a result, androgen levels. Cons, difficult to follow, adds stress to the adrenals, negatively impacts sex hormones and ignores your body's own signals. So what does the research show? There are no studies on intermittent fasting in PCOS, uh, but there are a couple studies on caloric timing that I think are interesting. Uh, there was a six-month randomized controlled trial in 60 lean women with PCOS. They had a BMI of less than 23.7. Um, there were two groups. The large breakfast group ate 980 calories for breakfast, 640 for lunch, and 190 for dinner. The large dinner group ate 190 calories for breakfast, 640 for lunch, so same lunch, and 980 calories for dinner. So I think this is much more in line with the way most of us tend to eat. 
Uh, both diets were 1,810 calories. Um, the large breakfast group showed significant improvements in glucose levels. Uh, they went down 7%. And insulin levels, they went down 54%. Uh, free testosterone went down by 50%. And sex hormone binding globulin increased by 105%. A recent 2022 study of 168 women with PCOS and 102 age-matched women showed that eating patterns differ in people with PCOS compared to people without PCOS. They found no difference in the amount of food or total macronutrient levels or proportions, but they found that people with PCOS ate both breakfast and lunch later than people without PCOS did. People with PCOS also ate more junk food and less fiber compared to people without PCOS. They found that junk food consumption was correlated with BMI, glucose levels, and cholesterol levels, and that the more dairy that they ate, uh, the higher the chance that they also had hirsutism or excess facial and body hair. So my two cents on intermittent fasting and caloric timing are if skipping breakfast were going to work, it would have worked already. Most of the women who come to me struggling with weight issues and PCOS are already skipping breakfast most days of the week. Intermittent fasting can worsen already stressed adrenal glands. Uh, that being said, I think most people who are doing intermittent fasting are doing it wrong. Uh, what we should be doing is front loading our caloric intake, eating a bigger breakfast and a smaller dinner, starting eating when the sun comes up and stopping eating when the sun goes down. Uh, I don't consider 12 hours to be a fast. It's just eating in accordance with circadian rhythm. I never ever recommend intermittent fasting in reproductive aged women, maybe after menopause, if there are no adrenal or thyroid issues, sleep is good and there's absolutely zero stress. Uh, but if you meet that woman, please send her my way because I would love to meet her. I wanted to touch base on the few other uh, studies that are out there when it comes to diet and PCOS. Um, high protein diet uh, study compared a 30% protein diet to a 15% protein diet, and that improved glucose levels did not have any difference in testosterone, sex hormone binding globulin, or lipids. An eight-week study compared 30% protein to 15% protein. That study showed decrease in weight, BMI, waist circumference, percent body fat and belly fat with a higher protein diet in PCOS, uh, no changes in insulin resistance, glucose, insulin, lipids, or blood pressure. Um, high fiber diet. Again, these are all very tiny studies. This was 39 women. Um, no significant difference in intake based on a seven-day food record. Um, they did show an inverse relationship between um, fiber and insulin resistance. So the more fiber you eat, uh, the lower your insulin resistance. Also an inverse relationship between fiber intake and total body fat, abdominal fat, and android fat. So more fiber you eat, the less fat you have. 
Um, there's a study that showed a combined approach of high protein, low glycemic, low calories. So it was uh, low calorie, 30% protein and low glycemic carbs um, compared to a conventional low calorie diet with 15% protein. Uh, weight loss was similar. There were significant reductions in insulin, insulin resistance, and inflammation with the high protein, low GI diet. Uh, pulse-based diet, which I thought was interesting, was a 16-week study in 61 women with PCOS where they added beans to their lunch and dinner, um, and they did see improved insulin sensitivity, triglycerides, and HDL, or good cholesterol. Uh, what about some of the other plans that are floating around out there? So there are a lot of 30-day clean eating plans, 75-day uh, challenges, and weird detoxes and diets floating around. Um, I see that egg fast pop up every so often on, on Instagram, on the PCOS hashtag. And um, recently I was even asked about peptide therapy and I had to look up what that even was. Um, the main thing wrong with these diet plans and detoxes is that they weren't designed for PCOS. So they don't take into account the root causes of PCOS symptoms or the most important factors when it comes to managing PCOS, namely balancing your blood sugar, lowering inflammation, and supporting gut and hormone health. Uh, new diets pop up every day, but they're not sustainable and they're not created with PCOS in mind. Any weight that you lose, you will gain weight back plus more because they're not sustainable and they weren't meant to be sustainable. The 30-day clean eating plan comes right out and says it was never meant to be followed for longer than 30 days. So you can keep following them, keep jumping on that next shiny thing bandwagon, uh, but chances are you will fast forward a few months and be in the same shape you are now, if not worse. So I really don't recommend any of these. Um, so key takeaways from this episode, what can we learn from all of this? First of all, there's no one ideal diet for PCOS. Uh, based on the research that's available, a moderate carb um, around 40% of daily calories, higher fat around 30%, and higher protein around 30% may be a reasonable approach. Uh, the quality of carbohydrates matter. We want to focus on high fiber vegetables, fruits, legumes, whole grains, and starchy vegetables, and limit processed foods and added sugars. Uh, we know from the studies, the more restrictive the diet, the more difficult it is to follow and the fewer people were able to stick with it. So when we're dealing with a lifelong condition like PCOS, any changes we make to our diet has to be something we can stick with for a lifetime. Um, a recent 2021 review study of diets in PCOS concluded Diets that can reduce rates of obesity and insulin resistance are beneficial to women with PCOS. 
but the status of obesity and insulin resistance should be determined at the early stage of the disease so as to develop individualized and sustainable dietary intervention. The long-term efficacy, safety, and health benefits of diet management in patients with PCOS needs to be tested by further research. And that was a review study by Che et al. in 2021. So the way that we approach things here at The Hormone Dietitian is to guide you to help you find a diet that is not only blood sugar balancing, anti-inflammatory, gut and hormone supporting, but is also individualized and accounts for your food preferences, culture and accessibility, lifestyle, including your cooking skills and time that you have available to spend in the kitchen, your current activity level, other diagnosed medical conditions, the severity of your PCOS root causes and current labs, and your goals, including weight, family planning, and more. In my new live training, Losing Weight with PCOS, we'll talk about all the reasons why it's so hard to lose weight with PCOS, why focusing on the scale is the wrong approach, and what to focus on instead. And the best part is it doesn't involve giving up any of your favorite foods. It's happening June 15th and it will be recorded if you can't make it live, but you'll want to show up live to get your questions answered. Register today at thehormonedietitian.com forward slash PCOS weight, all one word, PCOS, W-E-I-G-H-T. Thank you for joining me for this week's episode of Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. See you next time. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could open up the podcast app you're probably using to listen to this episode right now and leave a quick rating or review. Your reviews help this podcast get seen by more women who could benefit from the information I share here. Stay tuned for our next episode. And in the meantime, stay balanced. Stay balanced.